And as we read from God's word this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith, with, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among them who are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word in his prayer. Father God, thank you for your word that is truth, your word that convicts us of our sins, but also that builds us up in our faith and our knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to be glorified through it, and that you would um, raise up and and, um, strengthen your church through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, J.K. Rowling is a British author. Um, she may be familiar with her. I'm sure you are. She, she wrote um, a very uh, popular children's book series called the Harry Potter series. It was massively successful children's fantasy book. Um, these books uh, sold millions of copies. And for years... Rowling enjoyed huge popularity in mainstream culture. Well, that changed quite recently when she committed the cardinal sin of saying that men cannot be women and women cannot be men. And because of these outrageous statements, she was canceled because of her rejection of uh, this transgender ideology. And she was vilified. She is still vilified by the media, by social media. She's been written off as a bigoted and um, backward and hateful person. She's been shamed in public. She's even endured attacks on her home um, for saying something that um, for most people have affirmed for the last however many thousands of years. Um, it's pretty tragic. Um, and unfortunately, her experience is, is not unique. 
Um, it reflects the, the norms, increasing norms of our culture, which requires now a slavish obedience to its ideas and values. So it, it, it's, it kind of is a, a salvation by works, if, if, if you please. That if you d- deviate from these expected norms and values, just one strike and you're out. And you are canceled and your reputation is down the drain. Um, basically, you're, you're, you're in tatters. And it's essentially a, a manifestation of what the culture would embrace to is, is a, a karma, okay? Which is the teaching that you, you get what you deserve. If you do something wrong, well, karma is going to come and bite you. And you're going to um, you know, uh, have bad luck for the rest of your life. And even if you apologize, it doesn't matter. You, you can't apologize in this system. There's, so essentially, there's no way to redemption. The sad thing is that grace does not come naturally to us as sinful humans. In fact, we, we are hardwired towards legalism. That we are to earn our way to salvation, um, the, the way to, to find happiness and, and contentment is to do certain practices and work your way up to God. But if you mess up on the way, there, there's no mercy. It's a, a cold justice. And so in this morning's passage, we're going to see how the Lord showed the Apostle Paul much grace. And Paul, who we'll see, is, calls himself the worst of sinners, Jesus mercifully forgave. And he received grace undeserving. And so what we're going to see as we work through this text this morning is that the reason that Jesus came to earth was to save sinners. And because this is true, how much more does his grace overflow even to us? So let's get straight into it. If you remember from last week, we looked at the passage um, right before this one, and we, we saw there that, um, you know, that Paul is writing to, to young Timothy on how to deal with false teachers in, in the church. And what were these false teachers teaching? Well, they were misusing the law. And so Paul um, tells, instructs Timothy on how to correct them. Um, he instructs them um, how to use the law lawfully. And that's really what we looked at last week. Um, we saw that the purpose of the law in the Christian life is to expose our sin. And, and Paul does that very vividly by um, quoting in the previous passage the Ten Commandments and demonstrating through that how we've all, every single one of us, have broken those commands throughout our lives and actually continue to break those commands. So essentially, we all stand guilty as lawbreakers before God. And that's one of the functions of the law is to do just that, is to convict us of our sins. And but not only there is to drive us then to Christ and then to show us the will of God, to show us um, a, a, a life, how to live a life that is pleasing uh, to God. So we pick up in verses 12 and 13. 
Say, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul starts off this section by giving thanks to Jesus who strengthened him and who judged him faithful and has appointed him as an apostle in order to serve God. Now, we need to understand that that those statements are incredibly remarkable. Well, why are they remarkable that God has judged Paul faithful and that he has now entrusted him with the most, one of the most important offices in the church? Well, it's remarkable because we know what Paul was like before. And uh, we know this from other parts of the Bible, what Paul was like before he received Christ. And Galatians 1, 13 to 14 um, Paul, Paul is, in his own words, he tells us that he was a very zealous, he was a Jew, okay? he was zealous in his Judaism, and he was persecuting the early church. He was persecuting the church of God. He was violently trying to destroy it. He personally oversaw the execution of, of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts 7. Then in Acts 8, verse 3, it tells us that Paul quote, was, was ravaging the church. He was dragging off Christian men and women, um, putting them into prison, um, ordering their execution. Um, and in Acts 9, 1 says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now just pause there for a second. Paul used to kill Christians. He was a a murderer. He was actively opposing God and his purposes, trying to destroy the church. And this is essentially what Jesus tells him when he meets him on the Damascus road. In Acts 9 verse 5, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So in the light of the law, Hey, the Ten Commandments, which Paul you quoted just before, Paul realizes now well, he stands guilty as charged. In verse 13 here, he, he admits that he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent, a violent opponent of God. Here's someone, a hater of God, out, set out, folk, single focused mind to crush the church. Opposing God's ways, blaspheming his name, murdering people. Now, according to God's justice, what does Paul deserve for what he's done? Death. Because of his sins. That's the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us. But... Despite these sins, and we must understand, these are not just, okay, all sin is ultimately the sentence is death. But Paul's sins in particular are horrific. Despite these heinous sins, what else does it tell us in verse 13? Well, it tells us that Paul received mercy from God. This is 
Incredible. And we know that from Acts 9, this unfolded there. Paul was on the road to Damascus. Okay, what was he on the road to do? He was on the road to kill more Christians. He was on the road to commit more evil. But Jesus appeared to him and intervened. And Galatians 1.16 called him by his grace. And so here in, in verse 14 in this chapter, he describes it like this. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what was this, the nature of this grace that overflowed for Paul? Well, God gave him what he didn't deserve. He deserved death for his sins. But instead, what did God do? He, he reached down to him in the midst of his rebellion and his darkness and, and his, his evil heart. And he gave him a new heart. He forgave his sins and he washed the slate clean. And from being one of God's enemies, he was transformed into being one of God's friends in Christ. And not only that, he went on to be one of the most important apostles. And pretty much right half the New Testament was used by God in an in, 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 in incredible way. So how was this all possible? How could it be that God gave to Paul what he clearly didn't deserve? Why did he show this enemy of Christ, this guy who was single-mindedly setting out to destroy um, God's people, why did he choose to give him such grace? Well, verse 15 continues. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So we see here, tells us the purpose of why Jesus came. What is that purpose? Was it so that we would live our best life now? Was it so that we would live a lifestyle of miracles? Was it so that we would be rich and, and famous and always be healthy um, no. The purpose that Jesus, that God sent Jesus to the world was to save sinners. And since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, which plunged mankind into sin, thereby separating um, man, our ancestors, from, from God's presence, the plan of God from that point has been to send a savior. Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel, that he was going to send the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent in order to fix the mess, deal with sin, save sinners, redeem a people for himself. And over, you read the Old Testament, that plan starts to slowly take shape until we finally comes to fulfillment as we get to the new testament and jesus comes jesus comes to earth and he saved sinners by taking upon himself our sin though he was sinless he paid the penalty 
for the sins that we deserve. And that's exactly why he died on the cross, facing the judgment of God. But he rose again and he defeated death, forgiving sins. So we want to know how Paul was forgiven. Well, this is precisely how Paul was forgiven. Through what Jesus did for him. Now, the amazing thing here is that Paul considers himself, okay, from the literal translation of the Greek, the, the first of sinners. Okay, or what he is intending to communicate is the, the very worst of sinners, the most sinful person. Okay, a blasphemer, a murderer, someone who violently opposed um, the purposes of, deliberately opposed the purposes of God um, himself. And so what we see here with Paul is evidence of deep repentance. Okay, there's a stark realization for Paul of the sinfulness of his sins. He was the worst of sinners. From someone who thought he was doing the will of God. Now he's come to a realization it was evil and he turned from it. So you don't see Paul still killing Christians after he met with Christ. Okay? True repentance is evidenced in him leaving his sin. And that's precisely what he did because Christ empowered him to do so. But also we see the incredible truth is that if God through Christ forgave Paul, was the very worst of sins, who committed these, these heinously evil sins, how much more is he willing to forgive you for your sins? If you can forgive a murderer, someone who tried to destroy the church, how much more is he willing to forgive your own sins? And Jesus forgives sins. He forgives us sinners precisely because this is the very reason why he came to earth. It's the very point of his existence is to forgive us of our sins. So verse 16 carries on. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says here that he received mercy. Now this tells us something of the nature of God's grace, of God's saving work, that Paul didn't in any way earn this mercy. Well, clearly we know he didn't because he was so violent, you know, how sinful he was. And so instead, he, he, he received it. He was a passive recipient of this grace. Remember, Paul was, was, was off to go and kill some more Christians when Christ appeared to him. Paul was in no way seeking after God. Paul didn't decide to make a decision for Christ and, 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 and choose him. I mean, it's the exact opposite. God chose him. And we see this in, in Galatians 1.15. He says... Explaining his own testimony, he says, But when he who set me apart before I was born 
and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. So we clear example here of God's sovereign grace being showered over Paul. Paul, God predestined Paul, elected him for salvation even before he was born. He called him by his grace. Um, He revealed Christ to him. It was God and God alone who who reached down to Paul in the mess of his sins and, and who turned his heart of stone into a heart of flesh and who raised him up by the power of the Holy Spirit and who had mercy on him and forgave his sins and and sealed him for for an eternal salvation. God did all of that. And so this is exactly what what Paul then later declares, inspired by the Spirit, as as God's word in Ephesians 2, 4-9. But God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. So brothers and sisters. We exactly like Paul. Bring nothing to the table. When it comes to our salvation. The only thing we bring is our muck and sins and rebellion. No part of our salvation is our own doing. But thankfully, it is God who is the one who has mercy on us. God is the one who sets, who chose to set his love upon us and chose also to not treat us as our sins deserve. And so saved us through Christ, granting us this gift of grace because of his great love for us. And brothers and sisters, this is all a demonstration of his sovereign, undeserved grace. Let's bring us to our second point, a response to grace. So having received this amazing and undeserved grace from the Lord, what then should our correct response be? Just... Carry on living how we've always lived in our sins because we think God's going to forgive us anyway. May it never be so, as Paul says in Romans 6 verse 1. If that's our attitude, it shows that we haven't grasped the gospel, frankly. So what is the correct response? Well, the correct response is what Paul does next. And in verse 17, he lifts up his eyes to the Lord in worship and and uh, declares this doxology to the Lord is to the King of Ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so there's good news declared in this this uh, this doxology here that firstly the God who saves sinners is not some impersonal force. 
is not some undefinable thing called the universe. No, who is he? He's the king of ages. He's a personal God. The one true everlasting king who reigns right now on his throne over all powers, over all principalities and all earthly rulers and corrupt presidents. He is the one who was, who is, who is to come, who, who, is it, who eternally existed. And by his sovereign power chose a people for himself even before the creation of the world. Then he is immortal. Our God is not like us who is up and down in our character. Who changes, who, who, who is moved like us. We are moved by our passions. We, we grow old and our body decays. No, God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's reliable and faithful in all his ways. He's imperishable. He never grows old. He's incorruptible. And though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the sea, we will not fear because God is our refuge and strength, as Psalm 42 tells us. Because he is immortal, never wavering in his strength, what that means is that he will save us to the uttermost. He seals us for eternal life and causing us by the power of his spirit to persevere till the last day that because he is faithful even when we are faithless. So he's the king of ages, he's immortal, and he's invisible. It means he's not found within creation, that we can see him. He's not in the trees or in the mountains or the rivers. He cannot be seen, nor can he be depicted by images. That's why if we forbid him to, to depict him in images. Why? Because he is spirit. This is his essence. He is spirit. He's entirely other than us. He's the creator. He's not a created being. He's transcendent. He is high and lifted up. And only Jesus is the image of the invisible God. As Colossians 1.15 tells us, he's the eternal word of God made flesh, John 1.14 and he is the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1, verse 3. So he's the king of ages, he's immortal, invisible, and he's the only God. There are many gods. The gods of the nations are but worthless idols and imaginations of the minds, as Psalm 69, verse 5 says, because there is only one true God, Yahweh. The God of Israel, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. The one who dwells in the heavens and who does all that he pleases. And only he has graciously set his love upon sinners. Only he has, has saved a people for himself in Christ. Only he has forgiven sins and given us what we don't deserve and therefore, only he is deserving of all honor and glory and praise. Let's bring us to our final point, to hold firm from verses 18 to 20. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we've seen just how incredible God is by his saving of sinners and through his pouring out of undeserved grace onto even the worst of sinners like Paul. Now the truth is that God saves sinners in Christ. The fact that God saves sinners in Christ is not based on some of our feelings or neither is it a man-made theory or a philosophy. It's the truth of the gospel. It is what we understand to be sound doctrine, is what Paul says another place in 1 Timothy. It's this truth of the gospel which Paul and the other apostles have received by revelation from God himself. This special message that has been preserved for us in God's word today, this apostolic gospel. And what Paul does now, he says to Timothy, is you've got to hold firm to this gospel. You've got to hold firm to this sound doctrine. Because here in verse 18 and 19, Paul recalls, reminds Timothy about the prophecies that were made about him at his ordination. Okay, in 1 Timothy 4, 14, it talks about the, when um, the elders laid hands on Timothy. And we know that to be his early church ordination he was timothy was ordained in this L, as an elder and a part of that was that that, that certain promises were, were were spoken over words were spoken over timothy um, encouraging him to be faithful and preach and teach and defend this gospel and so paul is essentially reminding timothy to be faithful to his ordination vows fight the good fight hold Firm to sound doctrine. Teach the true gospel of grace. And why is this? Well, the reality is that the gospel, the true gospel, does not come naturally to us. And we saw from the beginning, our default setting as sinful human beings is toward legalism. Is to earn our way to heaven. Is to be a good person so that one day God will will accept me is to perform all sorts of spiritual practices climb up the spiritual ladder to get to to the divine to attain enlightenment whatever it is i mean essentially the message of every other religion on this planet other than christianity the truth of the gospel is that god reaches down to us in christ and saves us undeserving sinners from our sins and to the world that's utter foolishness that does not make a shred of sense because it's so contrary to our legalized nature to want to earn our salvation by ourselves. And so it's precisely because this is so, because there is such inbuilt, innate opposition to the message of the gospel that Paul instructs Timothy to hold fast to this gospel, to faithfully teach it. Because if, this, if the gospel is not relentlessly preached, week after week, taught and defended, our tendency is to wander away from it. Ultimately, into heresy, into false belief, and ultimately to shipwreck our faith, like we see here. 
Um, and Paul names and shames people. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Okay, he calls out false teachers when he sees them. Hymenaeus and Alexander, a different Alexander to, to our Alexander. Um, now, it's, it's, it seems obvious that these guys were a part of the church. But through whatever way, through the, the wanderings of their heart, they had shipwrecked their faith. And the result was that Paul had to discipline them. And he's exercising the authority that God entrusted him as, as an apostle with the keys of the kingdom, um, to, which elders have today, to shut people out of the, the church, to excommunicate um, people from the church. And so he's handing them over to Satan. That's Paul talk for excommunication, for um, removing them from the church because we see that he, he does that elsewhere. He uses that phrase elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, um, of um, people in the church who were, or well, there was a case where somebody was committing incest and he, as he handed them over to Satan. Okay, he, they are removed from the fellowship of the church. Now perhaps you think, well, amen, that, that seems harsh. To hand somebody over to Satan. To remove somebody from the fellowship of the church. Well, we need to understand what is at stake here. Because the truth of the gospel is not just some philosophy we can debate about at a, at a dinner party. It's not just you know, something we can enjoy different opinions about. And it's this kind of head thing of you have your view and I have, have my view. No. The salvation of our souls is at stake. The salvation of our souls rests on the truth of the gospel. If you fail to believe the truth of the gospel, that Christ died on the cross for sins and rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of sins, you will have to pay for your sins yourself in eternity. And perhaps you think, well, I don't have any sins to pay for. Well, that's just evidence right there of just how sinful you are. Because that's what sin does. It, it deceives us. It blinds us to our own self-righteousness. And we know that God has well, just seen previous chapter. Um, Timothy's, Paul's laid out the law. And before God's law, we all f- fall short. We are all lawbreakers and we all, are, we all are guilty. And what is the payment then for our guilt? What is the payment for our sins that God will require from every single human being who has ever lived on this earth on the last day? Well, that penalty is your life. As we know, the penalty for sins is death. Do you know what? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what Ezekiel 18, 23 says. He takes no pleasure in it. And that's precisely why he came to save the wicked by sending his son, Jesus Christ. The promised seed of the woman to crush the head of the servant, to destroy the power of sin and death by taking our place on the cross. 
And so in Christ, we get exactly what we don't deserve. Precisely because Christ received what we do deserve. And so in Christ, God freely extends his grace to sinners. To you, to me, even to the worst of sinners. A violent, blaspheming murderer like Paul. And what this means for us is that, you know what, there, there's no sin too big. There's no sin too vile for God to forgive. There's no dark secret that God can't handle from you. There's no offense that will cause him to turn his face away from you. There's no shame that he won't cover. There's no guilt that he won't take away from you. So repent, therefore. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who came into this world precisely to save sinners like you and me. And receive his undeserving grace, his mercy and love that overflow to those who put their trust in him. The king of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God who deserves all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.